Okay, a hush fell over the room, so I guess that means that it's time to start. Uh, let's begin with a uh, word of prayer. Almighty God, we thank you that you have controlled the days of our lives, but before we were ever born, long before that, your purposes have been working out across this world, and we are the results of those who have gone before us. We thank you for them. Pray for uh, us to uh, be those who uphold the best of what has been believed and taught and thought throughout all the years. And we ask your blessings upon this lesson this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, today's lesson is on uh, awakenings in America. And uh, if you have the handout uh, that uh, that is printed out, keep that handy. But <clears throat> I'm going to assure you it's like a bad GPS. There will be only occasions that it will be directing you along the way that we're going. So on, a, on every now and then you'll find out that we'll turn down a street that's, uh, that shows up here, but in other cases it may be a little bit different. So it all begins, uh, or begins here for our purposes, on July 8, 1741. There was a church in Enfield, Connecticut, and there was a, a visiting preacher who was invited to give a sermon that day. So he went out to his horse. And to his saddlebags, thanks for Kyron for providing me with this prop here. And uh, pulled out his uh, manuscript from a sermon that he had preached uh, some weeks before and went in to speak to this congregation. Uh, the pastor had asked him to preach because he said, My congregation is very stubborn at hearing the gospel. Uh, they were just you know, unresponsive and resistant to it. And another minister had uh, described that congregation saying, well, that group of people there are somewhat thoughtless and vain, uh, meaning this was a hard crowd. This was not a uh, group that was there welcoming and uh, uh, anxious to, uh, to, to hear the word. So this preacher then gets up and delivers a sermon. According to the, uh, the words that uh, we have, the accounts, Whenever he delivered this sermon, he read the manuscript, a rather lengthy uh, message. Read it pretty much word for word. Uh, his only gesture was that he looked at the bell rope at the uh, back of the room. There were no uh, waving of arms, no shouting or anything like that, but just in a uh, basic uh, you know, one tone of voice, he went through this, um, this, this sermon. <clears throat> The response was incredible. People began shrieking and crying. Uh, they began uh, just uh, calling out, just, you know, just kind of spontaneously, uh, what must I do to be saved? And, uh, you know, sometimes people were saying things like, I'm going to hell, and all kinds of things like that. At some point in the midst of this sermon, the preacher had to stop preaching just to let everybody settle down and basically had to tell them, you know, like a teacher to an unruly class, you know, Let's get quiet. Uh, so he went on with this sermon. Uh, then whenever uh, he got to the end of it, uh, people started gathering in little groups and talking more and more. Uh, and in the uh, fashion of that time, then the pastor uh, got up and they uh, closed with a hymn and a prayer. And that was, uh, that was the way the service ended. That minister was Jonathan Edwards. The sermon is uh, perhaps the most famous sermon in American history. It's titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
uh, reprinted often. Uh, you can find it anywhere online, or you can you know, find little booklets like this that, that have it in there. Uh, the sermon text was just a fragment of Scripture, very, very common for the Puritans uh, to uh, just take a little portion, and it was from uh, Deuteronomy 30, 32, 35, their foot shall slide in due time. And uh, from that, uh, he then went through the, uh, a bit of the historical background of the text uh, into the doctrine, and then much of the sermon was then uh, focused on an application of this. Edwards, even though his uh, style was very subdued, his manner was very subdued, he used quite a few metaphors or illustrations uh, that just kept driving home this point of what the condition was of these people uh, who were sitting there in, that, in the pews that day. Uh, he described God's wrath as a burning furnace. Uh, he described it as uh, black storm clouds that were gathering uh, or as flood water, waters that were uh, pushing up against the dam about to break through. And then in probably the most memorable words and phrases, he spoke repeatedly of sinners being like a spider. Uh, being held on just a spider web over a flame. And you know from uh, spiders and spider webs that uh, the, uh, the web, even though it has for its texture incredible strength uh, as, as such, uh, it is a very delicate thing. And if you were to, uh, you know, some people are terrified by spiders. Uh, my, my daughter would be passing out if she were in here even thinking about this. But if you were to take a spider on a, uh, on, a, on a string of web there and hold it over a fire or put a match to it, it would just be gone. And he was describing, this is what you're like. You know, you feel secure. You feel like you're here. You feel like you're on solid ground and all that. Their foot shall slide in due time. You are like a spider being held up on there. All it's going to take is just one little bit of the flame to leap up there, and you are lost forever. To this day, this sermon shows up, like I said, you know, you can find it anywhere. Uh, it's in all kinds of literature, textbooks, usually at the lower levels, they'll just give snippets of it, uh, but uh, sometimes you can, you know, you, it's easy enough to find the, the whole message, and it's held up by a lot of people as what we might say as the best or the worst of Puritan theology, depending upon where people are coming from. First time I ever read from this sermon, it, it was in an older textbook. Older as in it may have come out. It was a book I'd picked up from the, that probably came out in the 50s or 60s or so. And it has the, you know, a few little snippets there about this, you know, the spider image. By the way, when Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, the author of this, was 13, he wrote an essay on spiders. And I mean, it wasn't just one of those little like, you know, I like spiders. They, you know, they are nice, you know, or something like that. I mean, like he wrote a scientific essay uh, on his observations of, of spiders. He was 13, so he was getting ready to go into college at the time. So um, uh, just little portions of this often show up. And I remember the, the first time that I read this, uh, there were these follow-up questions which were to the effect of, uh, well, how would you like to have to hear this kind of stuff all the time? And, uh, you know, they didn't put it in quite that tone, but, uh, you know, it gave the impression that every Sunday uh, in a Puritan church, all you were getting was, uh, you're going to hell and you're just a spider 
uh, barely able to hang on, and uh, you're, you're all going to die and go to hell. Uh, in the context, back home in his home church, Edwards had been preaching on 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Uh, if you look at uh, the course of his sermons, uh, he preached on quite a few topics, a, a lot of different uh, things that he said. Uh, you know, whenever he would preach on something, it wasn't just, uh, you know, all you are dying and going to hell. And even in this sermon, I may not be able to turn right to it, uh, my favorite uh, portion of it is, oh yes, I found, found it here, uh, is near the end of it where he says, and now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has thrown open the door of mercy wide and stands uh, in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south. Many that were lately in the same miserable condition that you are in are now in a happy state, and their hearts are filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. So it was this, you know, I just love that image. Like, you know, Christ has thrown open the door to these people who are perishing and is calling for them to come in. Very evangelistic, uh, very much a, uh, uh, the kind of sermon that's, you know, designed not just to tell people you're in a hopeless state, you know, that's where you are, no, no, no way out here, but rather believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So who was this man, this Jonathan Edwards? Born in the 1700s in, uh, in uh, Puritan uh, New England, uh, specifically in Connecticut. And uh, as is a recurring story of that time, you have a minister uh, who, is the, uh, who is the descendant of numerous ministers. Uh, you know, like his father and, uh, you know, I think maybe a grandfather, and certainly on, on his mother's side, his grandfather. You know, it, it was um, kind of life where it wasn't like... Uh, hey, Johnny, what do you want to do whenever you grow up? You know, it was like um, uh, more like a question like, uh, when do you intend to join in the ministry? So I mean, it was just, you know, something of the expectation of the family and of uh, the life that he had lived or the, the community he lived in. Uh, you know, educated family, uh, trained in this, uh, just cut his teeth on it and all that. Uh, he describes his own uh, indifference to uh, the faith in his early years and then at some point, you know, he's, uh, you know, he and he and young guys would get together like young guys always do and pray and talk about their souls. And um, <clears throat> you know, at some point, uh, you know, he found himself just thinking about uh, his relationship to God, uh, and it just, you know, worked a great work in his heart and just really committed him uh, to a life of following God. You know, kept all kinds of notes on all of that. Uh, somewhere along the way. Uh, he hears about this cute chick over there in one of the uh, neighboring areas, this girl by the name of Sarah Pierpont. And, uh, you know, what he heard was uh, just kind of like, wow. Uh, and that was that there's this girl who is very pious. She very, she very much loves God. Uh, and uh, any young girls in here, here's, here's a hint as to something that really just excites guys. She walked in the cemetery and uh, meditated on, uh, on her soul quite often. Uh, last night we were at a wedding and uh, the uh, comment was made that this guy that married a uh, great niece of mine first learned of her on, uh, somebody said, hey, look at this girl on Facebook. 
And uh, he, you know, looked on Facebook and saw her and was like, oh, yeah, I want to marry that girl. And he did. Uh, by the way, that doesn't happen every time, guys, you look on Facebook. It just doesn't work that automatically. Uh, but in this case, I don't know who it was, but somebody told Edwards about this, and he scribbles this little note. And uh, at, the, at the time, you know, paper wasn't abundant as it is now. And so if you had something, you know, like this, you know, you used all the margins and the back and all that to keep up with all of your notes and thoughts. And so he you know, describes this girl about, uh, you know, how amazing she, uh, she sounds, meets her, she, she's exactly that. Uh, they marry, and uh, over the course of years, they have uh, 11 children, you know, a lot, of, a lot of amazing stories there about all that. Uh, Edwards, as I said, goes to Yale College, uh, enters at about age 13, gets out by about uh, 17 or so, uh, begins working in uh, different churches along the way, and then finally becomes the uh, associate pastor uh, at one of the more prominent churches where his grandfather, Samuel Stoddard, is the pastor. And Stoddard was, um, uh, Stoddard was to that community something like Wallace Edgar is to the Texarkana community. You know, like if you, if you know Wallace Edgar. If you don't know him, attend five random funerals in Texarkana uh, of older people, and he will probably preach three of them. Uh, so, you know, just something of a pillar of the, uh, of, of, of the Texarkana world. And uh, great guy. I, I shared uh, getting to preach my father-in-law's funeral there, and the only thing that intimidated me was just like, Wallace has such incredible hair. I mean, it's, you know, he's tall and skinny, and then the hair goes up another foot. But uh, that aside, I, you know, Samuel Stoddard was just that kind of domineering, uh, dominating, not domineering, dominating uh, key figure. And there were just some uh, theological things that, that grandfather had uh, come up with to deal with ongoing uh, church issues. And then the, the notes and things will get into something called the halfway covenant and, uh, you know, it's, it's a confusing thing. It's like, how in the world did uh, they come up with that? And, you know, they were trying to deal with some ongoing problems that I'll deal with just in a little while. Though, don't expect me to give you an easy solution to the halfway covenant, which I usually figure that I don't really understand. Anyway, Edwards, uh, just to go on a little bit more about his life, uh, he's, uh, over the course of the years, most of the time, he's pastoring in Enfield, Connecticut. And just, uh, you know, just year in, year out, doing the pastoral work. And over the course of time, there are these events that get to be described as revivals. People are curious about what's going on. Uh, he, is, uh, he writes on them extensively. He was not the kind of pastor that would uh, say something like, Hey, let's meet for lunch next Tuesday. Uh, his view would have been, I don't go and meet for lunch. That's part of my study time. Well, hey, let's get together for breakfast next uh, Thursday. Then, like I'm up at that time studying. So it was like he he, he was not uh, he was not personable in that sense. Uh, he devoted much of his time uh, to his study, to his writings, and he's writing on these topics quite often of what's happening in his church, what he hears about that's happening in other churches and just analyzing the nature of what is this thing which is being called revival. Uh, and it's really, revival itself is a term that 
Uh, if you grew up in my time, you have one definition of what a revival is or was. And then uh, if you go back in time, it's like, no, that's not exactly what a revival was thought of at that time. And in the time of Edwards, it was uh, almost as though it was a new concept. It's like, well, what are we going to describe? How are we going to describe what's going on here? Uh, you know, just most of the time in history, what we do is something happens, and then later we attach a word to that. You know, like you don't talk to, you wouldn't talk to people in uh, Rome and say something like, well, you know, in these ancient times, like, ancient? This is modern. In fact, this is, we're postmodern. Uh, or uh, people in the medieval ages would not have been saying something like, well, you know, these are the Middle Ages. So it's like, you know, those are terms we, we use. And so with revival, when we talk about the Great Awakening, we go back and we say something like, well, we use the word revival now uh, as a description of what seems to be happening there. So Edwards himself is uh, the key, uh, one of the key theologians who's thinking through what this is, biblically how it works, uh, what uh, we expect, um, uh, what we should expect from a revival, what constitutes a real revival, and what's just somebody just having an emotional high, and how do we, how do we deal with people who are going all over the place uh, with all of these reactions. Edwards is, in retrospect, viewed as one of the greatest preachers in all of American history. Uh, we have, uh, or there exist, uh, hundreds of his sermons. Uh, there, I think Yale University Press has 27 or more huge volumes, uh, all of which you could uh, buy me just if you want to win my friendship. Money can't buy friends, but books can. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, just, you know, massive volumes where they've just collected his works together. And uh, to this day, again, I mean, he's just, you know, although he's often just seen as the, the guy who did Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that was just one of many. He's considered one of the great theologians in all of church history. Uh, in fact, uh, and probably the greatest or one of the top two or three greatest that America ever produced. Uh, R.C. Sproul had uh, five favorite theologians, and Edwards was in the list. You'll have to bribe me later if you want to find out from me what the, who the other four are. Uh, and he is ranked as one of the great philosophers, and maybe the greatest philosopher America ever produced. So if you, you know, if you were going to a, a university taking a cor you know, courses on philosophy and enlightenment philosophy, Edwards is going to show up. Uh, his discussions of the nature of, um, of free will and, you know, uh, to what degree we as humans, uh, how we go about decision-making and things of that sort, what factors influence our thoughts and minds and all. Uh, he's, he's one of the sources there that's, that's used on that, you know, recognized by Christians and non-Christians alike. Uh, he's a great writer of theological and uh, doctrinal works. And the key person you would go to on the topic of revivalism. And those of you that are uh, John Piper fans know that John Piper, in a case or two, mentions Jonathan Edwards. I mean, John Piper you know, just, has just gone spastic over Edwards and uh, has just communicated that to uh, so much so that uh, you can go and get uh, T-shirts that say, Jonathan Edwards is my, what is it, homeboy? Would that be Is that not the right term? Okay, you don't have such a shirt? And you're the, our Piper uh, 
buddy here. Okay. Well, you know, it's like you can you can buy Jonathan Edwards T-shirts these days, and mugs and uh, other things like that. So uh, you know, probably more more Jonathan Edwards uh, fans in our day and time uh, than would have ever existed in the past. And uh, you know, one of the greatest intellects. Uh, produced in colonial America or in all America. It's just, you know, if you're just trying to rank just greatest minds, uh, the man was, uh, you know, out of the time period of the Enlightenment. Uh, science was not his uh, main area, but quite often, as was the case, uh, very, you know, educated ministers uh, read and studied all kinds of things. He would have known uh, classic literature. Uh, he would have known history. He was a student of science. You know, like I said, he writes this basically a uh, our research paper on spiders uh, whenever he's just a young guy. Serves his uh, congregation for many years, and as often is the case, uh, gets honored by that congregation on down the road uh, at some point whenever uh, he starts uh, dealing with some issues related to who takes communion and who doesn't. And they had a church meeting and voted, I don't know, like 220 to 10 to dismiss him. So, like, okay, we're, we've had enough of you, uh, Mr. Edwards. Uh, but they ran into a problem as soon as they dismissed him, and that was they didn't have anybody to fill the pulpit. Like, good news and bad news. Uh, you're fired. That's the um, bad news. Good news is, is uh, could you fill the pulpit for the next couple of weeks till we find somebody? I think it took him about two years. Uh, and he did. And I was like, he just continued preaching to this congregation that had um, dismissed him. So uh, that, you know, from there he goes to uh, take a job uh, or a position on an Indian reservation and preaches to them. Evangelism of Indians was, uh, especially in the New England area, was an ongoing uh, uh, concern. And during that time he found a lot more time for his writings, did quite a few. Uh, there is a college that is in the midst of trying to get going. It's called the College of New Jersey at the time and they uh, contact him and they say we need somebody to be the president of the college and uh, he accepts that he and his daughter go there they uh, end up uh, they, they get a smallpox inoculation and um, uh, they died from it uh, it's kind of a strange thing but uh, the college of new jersey called about three men in succession uh, to be the president and they all died within a year of getting there of just different things so, uh, and one of them preached his opening sermon was, I shall not die but live to proclaim the, the glories of God. And he died. So uh, the, the issue, of course, you know, on the whole inoculations thing was that in that day and time, there was a good chance of getting smallpox. You know, just over, you know, plagues or outbreaks would, would happen. Uh, you know, it makes our, whoops, I'm losing it. makes our COVID um, uh, fears, you know, look small compared to what was going on. If you got smallpox, there was a very high, you know, uh, uh, probability that you were going to die from it. Uh, if you got an, an inoculation, there was a possibility that you would die from that. Inoculations were still in the early stages. They actually would take a pox from somebody that had the disease cut your skin, drop that in there. It, you know, basically you're just getting a small case of it uh, and hopefully live through it. He didn't. Neither did his uh, daughter who was there with him. And so in his early 50s, he died. All right, before we then get into the Great Awakening part, 
give me a five-minute warning. Okay, are we already there? Okay. Uh, there's another man who is uh, a key figure. He's an English preacher who arrived over here in the uh, colonies. And uh, same time period, basically 1740s, 50s, 60s, that time period. And we have an account of a man by the name of Nathan Cole uh, who hears about this English preacher who has come. And Nathan Cole was a farmer. Uh, he was out in his field plowing. And a neighbor comes by and yells out to him like, Hey, Nathan, George Whitfield's preaching over in, you know, some, some town nearby. And so Nathan immediately uh, unhooked the uh, horse from the plow, rode the horse to the house as fast as he could, told his wife, get ready, we're leaving. I mean, she didn't even have time to put on her makeup or anything, like fix her hair or whatever. It's like, you know, he's over this neighboring town. We've got to get there. And so as he describes it, uh, he would put his wife on the horse. She would ride. He would run along beside until the horse got tired, and then they would both get off and walk. I mean, maybe on occasion he got on and she ran, I don't know, but I think most of the time it's like they were doing everything they could. Then he gets, uh, they get within proximity of where these uh, crowds are converging. Read just a bit about what happened there. He writes, as they are approaching, they're going to this town that's called Middletown. And he said, I saw before me a cloud or fog rising. I thought, uh, I first thought it came from the great river, uh, but as I came nearer the road, I heard a noise, something like a low mumbling thunder, and presently found that it was the noise of horses' feet coming down the road, and this cloud was a cloud of dust. I could see men and horses slipping along in the cloud like shadows. Every horse seemed to go with all of his might to carry his rider to hear news from heaven for the saving of souls. It made me tremble to see the sight, how the world was in a struggle. So he goes on with uh, other descriptions of uh, just this, you know, this huge throng of people coming from everywhere to, to hear this, uh, this preacher. And he says when, you know, the preacher uh, began talking, he looked almost angelic, a young, slim, slender youth uh, before some thousands of people with a bold, undaunted countenance. He looked as if he was clothed with authority from the great God. And my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old fountain was broken up, and I saw my righteousness would not save me. Then I was convinced of the doctrine of election and went right to quarreling with God about it. Because that I could do, because all that I could do would not save me. He had decreed from eternity who should and should not be saved. Now, as it happens, Nathan was not uh, you know, converted uh, until two years later. Uh, but uh, what you know, it's like he hears this, this message. Up to that point, he had pretty much imbibed a thought that like, well, I'm, you know, I'm earning my way to heaven. He hears this, uh, and he wrestles in his soul with it for two years. But this was just a real turning point in hearing uh, Whitfield. Now, Whitfield, in contrast to Edwards, was flamboyant. Uh, he was energetic. He was speaking to thousands of people. You know, some people will say that, um, you know, that some of the audiences were up to um, you know, 8, 10, 15,000 people. And how he projected is just, you know, beyond me, you know, just in terms of, you know, because I have a very 
soft, quiet voice, and people can't hear me often. So uh, I was like, how he was able to boom out there and, uh, and be heard is just, you know, uh, astounding. And if, when you read the accounts uh, of, of, of him talking about it, usually, and I can identify with this, like he was just terribly sick before he would get up and speak. You know, just kind of like, well, I don't think I can make it. I'm just not going to, you know, I'm just on my last, you know, I, I believe I shall, you know, go home to be with God today. And uh, it's like, I'll get up and I'll try to say something. And then once he got up, you know, it'd be booming, you know, with uh, these little devotionals going two hours long, calling upon uh, people to believe, you know, on Christ. Very evangelistic, very much a call to all kinds of people to believe on Christ. Uh, you know, it was just uh, reckoned that, uh, you know, he just went across every kind of denominational line, every kind of cultural line, uh, you know, whoever came with, whoever he could speak to, uh, he, would, he would speak to them. He had started this uh, some years before. Uh, he had been a, 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 he came out of a, a home where he was, uh, his mother died, uh, and they were, his mother was running uh, something like a tavern, which was just kind of like, what, you know, like a, a, a bed and breakfast, uh, you know, housing people, and he worked there. He wanted to go to college. He really didn't have the means, so he had to take on what we would now call a work-study program going around, uh, taking care of, uh, cleaning the rooms and all, of, and all that kind of stuff of all the rich kids who didn't have to do that themselves. And he fell in with this group of weirdos uh, who were known as the, uh, the Holy Club. These, this group of young guys who were just, uh, they would get together and was like, okay, what does the Bible teach? How should we be living the Christian life? Uh, they had uh, read a book by a man by the name of Henry Scogel. I think I'm forgetting the name of it right now. Uh, but it was uh, in this very pietistic tradition of, you know, calling upon lots of prayer, personal prayer, lots of meditation, lots of soul-searching, doing, you know, just devoting every minute to doing good works. And this bunch of young guys were, were very intent upon that. And so, you know, they would get together. They were reading the scriptures. They were going out and, uh, and you know, witnessing in the streets. They would go and visit the prisons. They'd go and visit the hospitals. Uh, they uh, they would go to worship services daily, uh, and they just you know every moment. I don't know exactly how they ever got any study time in because uh, they were so devoted to this. And in fact, uh, they were so weird that uh, people came up with a um, a nickname for them that was supposed to be really insulting, and they just said, "You guys just are trying to follow the method of the Bible. You're just a bunch of Methodists." Like, oh boy, that hurt, you know. <laughs> What an insult. We're trying to follow the method of the Bible. And that, you know, hence that name uh, Methodist or Methodist societies uh, came out of that. So Whitfield fell in with this group. And they, you know, particularly it was in particular being led by two brothers named Charles and John Wesley. And uh, they were preaching, you know, as uh, they had occasion, especially as they were reaching the point of graduating and being ordained in the Church of England. Uh, John Wesley and I think Charles as well came over to the colonies and were just total flops uh, over here, uh, went back to England. And when they got there, uh, Whitfield, who was, you know, it was like Charles and John were just kind of like the, you know, first and second draft choices uh, for, uh, you know, greatest, uh, greatest preachers in the making. And uh, Whitfield was more like the guy, you know, on down the bench a ways. Uh, but uh, in this particular case, they get back, and Whitfield is uh, doing something that's just really shocking. 
Uh, how many of you are still in high school or junior high in here? Okay. This is going to be really shocking now, what I'm going to say. You may have to go home and talk to your parents about it. Whitfield was preaching outside the walls of a church. And it started because he would go to a church, and it was like it was just packed full, and people were sitting in the windows. People were standing out there. It was like, let's move outside. And so it was a lot of times, you know, uh, there would be a cemetery, and if there was, you know, somebody prominent that had died there and had a big tomb there. It's like, it like, oh, just stand up there on that. And he would preach. So it's like, you know, there's no, no limits. And he's preaching this very evangelistic message to them. And then he does something else that's really shocking, kids. You'll want to go home and talk to your parents about this. Uh, he just, somebody says, why don't you go preach to the coal miners? Like, ugh. they're dirty. They are, they're low down. They, they're not Christian. They're just, they're subhuman uh, but he goes down and starts preaching to these guys and you know and it was just said that uh, you know that when, when you work in a coal mine you come out of there you know your face is just solid black and uh, from all the coal dust and it was just said there would be these little white streams of where tears were going down their eyes hearing the gospel because people had not been uh, preaching to them uh, up to that point the gospel for coal miners the good news for coal miners was gin now, and, you know, when I think about coal mining, it's like I would uh, just the whole thought of that is like, give me the gin before I go in there. Uh, I just I just can't fathom that kind of life. But it was just you know something like a hopeless, difficult, poor, miserable uh, life. And now they were hearing the gospel. They were being uh, they were being reached uh, by this man who is preaching in all kinds of situations. And he comes to the colonies and starts doing the same. And when Charles and John Wesley heard that, they said, No, 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 you don't. Mm-mm. Uh, not exactly so, but uh, they come to understand uh, the new birth, uh, the, uh, the, you know, basically a clearer understanding of how we're saved, uh, that it's not uh, that, that what Skogel said about the Christian life is like, that's good, but that's not what saves you. That's what should follow. And, uh, you know, they, they begin doing the same thing. It's like, oh, I'm going to try this weird radical thing and Folks, let's step out onto the grounds here and have the sermon outside. And so, you know, they began doing the same thing. Uh, Wesley will spend uh, the rest of his life riding all over uh, England and at times into Scotland uh, sharing the gospel in that same way. Meanwhile, Whitfield makes numerous uh, visits to the colonies, and it just got to where uh, he was just... Uh, incredibly well-known. Some people say that up to 80% of the people in the colonies heard him preach. Benjamin Franklin, very famous case, goes to hear him. Franklin's an unbeliever. And Franklin uh, decided before he goes, he's like, I am going to make sure I don't carry any money with me. Uh, I think maybe he just, you know, kept basically what we'd say like a few dollars. Uh, Because I know Whitfield would go to preaching, and, and a lot of times his preaching was, he wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, you know, send in your money and keep this ministry going here. But he was supporting an orphanage down in Georgia. So he would always, you know, have an appeal there uh, for the orphans. And uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin is way off in the distance. He's hearing him, and he's like, okay, I'll give what money I have. And then he goes and, uh, you know, sees somebody he knows, like, hey, can I borrow a few bucks from you? (laughs) He's wanting to give more. Uh, Franklin and Whitfield became friends. Uh, Franklin was a great businessman. He was like, hey, I run a printing business. Uh, those sermons of yours, uh, they would sell like hotcakes. 
So, uh, you know, they, they got together and uh, became friends, though uh, Franklin, you know, apparently never uh, came to, uh, you know, a saving faith uh, with, you know, that, that his friend had. So th- these, are, these are the two big names. You know, like oftentimes in church history, we deal with a time period and we'll have a name or, you know, one or two or three. Like even in the New Testament, you know, we usually, you know, focus on, well, there's Peter and there's Paul uh, and there's John and then there are those other guys. And, you know, a lot of times in church history we'll say something like, you know, the Reformation, Luther and Calvin. Uh, and then whenever you start getting a little bit deeper in that, you find out, okay, there are lots of other people. It's just that it's hard to remember 25 different names. And whenever we, you know, emphasize Whitfield and, uh, and Edwards, they're really just, you know, they are the two big dominating figures, but they are two among many uh, that will be here in the colonies. So what was going on here? Because this wasn't just something that was happening with these two big megastars. This is something that's going on in churches across the, 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 the colonies. It's going on in churches across England. It's going on in, uh, in, the, in the German states over in, uh, in uh, Europe. So it's like, what was happening time and time again? And that's what you know, we then look back and call uh, the Great Awakening. So let's go back a few years. And you can look at the map there that we have uh, on the uh, back of the handout that I gave. The founding of the colonies was Christian in its basic purpose or the founding of a particular colony Uh, was Christian in religious influence, meaning that uh, those who came and started a colony would start it because they had a specific Christian theological purpose, which was usually something like, we don't want to stay over here in Europe and get killed for our beliefs. We want a little bit more freedom to practice what we believe uh, somewhere else. And the New World uh, was uh, just, you know, just kind of like, uh, okay, come over here and try, try your ideas out here and, uh, you know, start your own colonies, set your own rules. Uh, the game is, is yours. And so that's how, you know, many of them were started, specifically Christian. So you end up with uh, uh, Plymouth Rock or Plymouth Plantation, uh, specifically set out by a group of uh, separatists who said, the Church of England is so bad that the only way to solve the problem is break away from it completely. Set up your own church. They tried going to the Netherlands. It was like, ah, our kids are speaking Dutch when they come home. So like, uh, they, they then came to the New World. Then uh, what ends up engulfing uh, Plymouth was uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which was settled by Puritans. And the Puritans had a different approach, and that was, the Church of England has so much good in it, but it still has so many of the rags of popery. And it didn't have to do with those little smelly things that they put around or anything like that, but it was just, you know, it still had practices uh, that, uh, that just don't break enough from the Roman church. And so uh, we want to purify the church. And England, uh, you know, underwent uh, an actual civil war and revolution over all of that. But many of the uh, Puritans came to the New World. It was like, all right, we can set it up here and we can play by our rules. We're not going to have a government that's uh, suppressing us. Uh, you know, we're in charge now. We, we're going to do it our way. And then, um, as Eric talked about last week, you have 
uh, Rogue Island. Okay, now that was one of my best jokes there. Rogue Island. Rogue Island. Okay, all right. Hey, if you have to explain the joke, it really goes down. Uh, Rhode Island, uh, you know, because there's always people who, um, like, okay, well, let's all go and do it our way. But then who's like, I don't like our way. I want to do it my way. And uh, Roger Williams had um, a series of, of, of ideas, some of which were kooky off the wall, some of which were like, oh, yeah, he's right on that. Uh, but uh, he went off his own way. Uh, there was a woman who is always just, you know, touted as kind of like the hero, the heroine of, uh, of, of modern history, uh, Anne um, Hutchinson, uh, who would have meetings after church to uh, critique the uh, pastor's sermons. You know, I'm sure, you know, Jared would love that if there's some woman who's like, okay, everybody wants to meet over my house, I'll tell you what's wrong with the sermon today. And uh, so there's like, Anne, you can't do that. So, you know, she ends up going to Rogue Island as well, and others along the way. But it was still, it was specifically Christian. There wasn't any kind of sense like, uh, you know, oh, it's just, you know, we're just neutral about all of these things. In the middle colonies, uh, you had more of a mix of things, a lot of uh, Dutch Reformed people originally in, uh, in New York, which had been New Amsterdam or New Holland, and then uh, Anglican churches uh, came in later, and various others, Pennsylvania, uh, which was Pennsylvania and Delaware and parts of New Jersey originally, had uh, Quakers who were in the category of these were first-class religious kooks. I mean, it was like Quakers were probably nice people and all that. Uh, but, you know, it was just uh, let's all just sit here and just meditate until somebody kind of gets the shakes and they get up and give a message, you know, as opposed to giving a, a, a Bible-based message. Now, again, you know, it's like they, they had been... Christianized enough, they didn't disregard the Bible, uh, but uh, they were just a little uh, on the uh, extreme side. And they were getting in trouble in England over that, and uh, they started coming to the colonies. But uh, there weren't enough of them, so they just said something like, well, come one, come all. You can come to our colonies. Well, if you go, I don't have a map on there of, um, of, um, uh, of England, but I always use my hand at school. I was like, okay, this is England right here. This is Scotland up here. And up in Scotland and right over across the way in what we now call Northern Ireland, you had uh, really profound thought here. In Scotland, you had the Scottish people. And uh, they were running into you know, just a whole complicated story of uh, the Scots and the Scots-Irish uh, and their church troubles and all that. And many of those people came to the colonies as well. And they, uh, whenever they, they, they got here a little bit later, and to some degree, the Quakers, basically, I'm sure they never said this, but it was kind of like, all right, we're Quakers, we're pacifists. But we have a problem because out on the frontier are Indians, these various Indian tribes. And, you know, and they, they really tried to work with Indians, and they were peaceful toward them and all that. Uh, but, uh, you know, Indian tribes being people who are sinful, just like the European tribes were, like they were oftentimes very violent people. And the Quakers like, you know, um, we have a problem here because we don't like to fight. And, you know, and here comes all these Scots-Irish uh, people over here. It's like, hey, y'all have any problem fighting Indians? <laughs> no, we love fighting. We're Scots. 
So, uh, like, you know, we'll be right out there on the frontier with our bagpipes and all and uh, give it a go. Uh, so uh, whenever you look at these, you know, and a lot, of, a lot of people here, probably, you know, nearly all of us have a mixture of Scots-Irish and Scots in our background. They went on to the, to the far side, what would have then been called the western part of the country, which is now still way off in the east, toward the Appalachians, and they settled the country just moving down the Appalachians. You know, what finally, you know, becomes, you know, just basically mountain people and all that kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, to this day, that, that Scotch-Irish uh, heritage. Uh, the, and these were Presbyterian folk, and uh, they got out there on the frontiers there with their faith and all initially. All right, you move right on down uh, from there to, the, to uh, Maryland. Uh, it was Catholic because Catholics got in trouble in England, depending upon who was happening to, who happened to be the king or queen at the moment. Uh, most of the time they were not allowed, so uh, they got a colony. They came over. There weren't many of them, so they did the same things like, hey, y'all, come on in. You're welcome here. And Protestants came in and outnumbered them and, uh, you know, basically kind of set the tone for, for their colony. The rest of the southern colonies were Anglican or Church of England. And that's why I said, you know, some colonies were specifically Christian. We came here to worship in this way. In the southern colonies, they didn't come here saying something like, oh, we just got to have some place where we can practice uh, uh, Episcopal church government and uh, Church of England. Like, no, you can stay back home and do that. They're like, oh, we need to go somewhere where we can make some money. They're like, well, come on over to the colonies and uh, you can uh, uh, grow tobacco and rice and uh, flax and uh, just make you know, loads of money and have lots of land. Uh, but very Christian colonies in terms of laws, in terms of documents, in terms of the founding charters, in terms of a lot of specifics and all that. Just not always the same intent that you see that was uh, going on in New England. So those are the colonies. You know, this is just one of those things where when it comes to the Christian founding of America, you can take it to the bank. You know, you might, you know, go through a college course or whatever, where it's like it's not even hinted at or just kind of mentioned in passing, but it's like this country was specifically founded by Christian people for Christian purposes. It is solid. No question about that. It's nothing that nothing you can uh, come up with is going to, you know, uh, discount that. Why'd you need a great awakening? Well, some of you who garden know this. What is the best way with a plot of ground to grow a good batch of weeds? What's the best method to do that? What do you have to do? I have to say, speak where I can hear. Nothing. You don't have to do anything. You know, it's like, I, you know, I look out and, you know, we end up with some, just some dirt, like, you know, a month or two later, it's like, there's all kinds of stuff growing there. I mean, it's just, you know, things fighting for, uh, you know, for dominion there over that piece of land. And in, uh, in, in the Christian faith, all you have to do for weeds to grow up is nothing. It's happening. You know, like right now in our lives, we're all struggling with a number of, of, uh, of unspiritual, ungodly weeds and problems and difficulties that just happen. Uh, you know, and it happens uh, even whenever you're going strong, whenever you are uh, devoting yourselves to uh, Christian practices and all that. It's something that happens. And whenever you look at the Great Awakening, you're talking about a group of people that come here 
and now we add 100 years onto that. And, you know, and all we'd have to do is just think back to what is America like in, in, uh, in, ni- in, in 2023 and what is it like in 1923? What can happen over the course of 100 years? Now, my dad would have been three years old. I'm not sure that uh, at any point in his life, all the way up till he died in 2016, uh, that uh, he would have ever imagined that you could talk about a topic like more than two genders. Like, I think he would have just been embarrassed if you had mentioned such a thing. But it's like, you know, okay, a lot can happen over 100 years. And it's not just that, oh, well, we're in the age of, uh, you know, of ideas traveling fast and, uh, you know, computers and uh, Internet. And, uh, like, things happen over 100 years no matter what. And over 100 years, uh, you know, you'll find that, uh, that, 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 that certain things get lost along the way. Some of you may have noticed this if you have multiple children, that sometimes when you get down to that, uh, you know, third, fourth, or fifth child, uh, it's like there are things that you were really emphasizing with child one and two, uh, and then it's like, oh, we forgot to ever mention this. You know, I remember um, uh, a family I know has been very much involved in missions, and this, uh, this woman said uh, that, uh, that, I don't know, it was child number five or so, uh, something came up about missionaries. And this little girl says something like, what's a missionary? And they're just like, oh, my goodness, one of our children doesn't know what a missionary is? So, because, uh, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd cut their teeth on uh, mission work and all that. Uh, and uh, she explained to her daughter what a missionary was, and the daughter says, I'm like, oh, I think I'd rather be a princess. So, you know, in our own family, um, you know, like I always think, and my daughter Caroline confirms this. Am I down there at the time yet? I'm out? Oh. Well, over the next five or six weeks, I'll get the rest of this covered, okay? All right. I have to tell the Caroline story that I'll close with. Uh, she's pretty much contends, and I think she's right. We never read to her. It was like, you know, with Nicholas, our firstborn, it's like we read all the time. My, my whole point is not child raising. That was last year's seminar. But it's just like over time, things that are top priority just get forgotten. Like, oh. We haven't even mentioned that in years. Right? If you live on a cattle ranch, you know, you forget to tell people about how to cook steak because like that's all you ever do. All right. Now with a culinary hint there, we will close.